Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome, everybody, to Soccer 101. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and this week we're discussing a concept that is ubiquitous in soccer and sport in general, but simultaneously seen as a problem and potential source of conflict of interest. It's gambling. Not at all murky or convoluted. This should be a quick, straightforward episode, no doubt. (laughs) By best estimates, sports gambling is at least a $500 billion a year industry, and football soccer makes up a huge percentage of that amount. Best calculations put gambling on football between 200 and $500 billion a year, of which a significant percentage occurs in gray or illegal markets. I'm showing my hand here a little bit where I am on this one. It's a feature of football from club and league-sponsored sites to shirt sponsorships to coverage itself focused on wagers and predicted finishes. And yet we see consistent reporting on match-fixing, betting scandals, addiction, and the controversy rooted in the idea that gambling is at once a core aspect of football and a potential consistent threat to its well-being. So how did we get here? How long has gambling been intertwined with soccer? How can it be a problem for players and owners and supporters alike? Or how can it become one, rather? It's going to be a fun episode, I think. Uh, Here with me to break it all down is Graham Ruffin. Graham, this feels like a more challenging episode than that coefficients episode from a few weeks ago. (laughs) <laughs> Hello, Taylor Rockwell. Yes, that is a that is a high bar because that coefficient episode yeah. was was uh, quite the breakdown. But you're right, gambling in in soccer is quite the topic, particularly at the moment. In various different ways, it is becoming a bigger and bigger talking point in in the sport. We've had stories related to um, players recently. We obviously mm-hmm. had the Ivan Tony situation where he was suspended from from playing for placing a, a number of bets we have the Sandro Tonali uh, situation as well which we'll go on to into a, in depth a little bit later on I, I should mention for the sake of disclosure that I own a company that is licensed by the gambling commission in the UK I also write for a number of bookmakers um, anyone who follows me on social media will, will know that they'll have seen my my articles or some of my tips However, I am freelance and I don't feel bound by anything and I'm certainly not going to curb my thoughts on an industry that in certain aspects has kind of got out of control and it is certainly something that is worth covering in this episode. I also think that's, first of all, very useful context, but also a very important viewpoint for this episode because I think I come from a more naturally anti-gambling perspective. I don't really even have a problem with gambling. I think a lot of this is shaped by uh, late co-host Daryl Grove and how vehemently opposed he was to gambling, just because I think from his time in in Birmingham, uh, how predatory it seemed to him, how often people would blow whole week's wages at their factory gig on um, a, a gambling gambler two or a wager or two. And, and I think he felt like it was a pretty as I said, predatory industry that didn't have enough regulation or at the very least enough compassion. But I'm also not sure that's its role. And so I think for me, coming from that perspective, you coming from yours, 
I feel like we can have a good conversation about gambling itself, its history, and sort of where it works, why it's important, why it can be enjoyable, but also how mm-hmm. it can be a pretty risky thing. Uh, so I look forward to this one, even if it's going to be a, an odd one at the same time. Graham, let's start with uh, the history of gambling. It's been around for a while. I'm going to say a few thousand years at least. Yeah. But in terms of <laughs> football, I think we could say... Illegal gambling, at least in, say, England, existing probably since the advent of the sport in in various forms and permutations. But legally, it's been since the 1960 Gambling Act when major companies became sort of uh, legal entities and you could then gamble legally that I think bookmaking became a much larger industry. Yeah, and I'm going to go a little bit further back uh, than that. Not as not as far as like the thousands of years you were talking about <laughs> the origins of gambling itself. Let's stick to gambling and soccer here. But gambling has been intertwined with the sport for longer than you might think. So the 60s, 70s was my, before I started my research, that was my hunch of when to look for that era. But actually, as far back as 1915, there was mm-hmm. a, a match-fixing scandal in a match between Manchester United and, and, and Liverpool. I presume that was a very informal uh, illegal betting scandal where players had essentially bet with each other on the result of a match that they were involved in but but even um, the 1920s a company called Littlewoods launched the football pools which was essentially a form of, of, of gambling the football pools actually exists to this day even if it isn't um, particularly mainstream but back in the 1920s this was just a more analog way of gambling you would pick your results in the paper and um, you cut out that bit of, pa- of of the newspaper that you'd filled in with your your predictions for the weekend and you included your money in an envelope and you sent it away and if you won you got an envelope back with some more money in it that was the way it worked there weren't any kind of gambling regulations at, at, at that time and um, so obviously very different times for for gambling and for the sport in general but the principle was the same this was a, an early form of of gambling on soccer and in more recent times in the UK, certainly, a real turning point came in the early 2000s when Tony Blair's Labour government lifted a lot of restrictions on gambling, particularly online gambling, and from there the floodgates opened. So Fulham became the first Premier League club to be sponsored by a gambling company in 2002, and by the 06-07 season there were more gambling companies on Premier League shirts than alcohol brands, which was symbolic because English soccer had long been reliant on money from booze brands up until that point. Across Europe, it was a similar sort of story. Real Madrid and AC Milan, listeners will remember, were sponsored by B-Win during the the, the 2000s. That was quite an iconic um, shirt and and sponsorship deal. That was maybe one of the big... One of the first instances of big clubs being sponsored by a bookmaker. And then you have leagues and competitions also sponsored by gambling uh, companies and and, and that is something that obviously um, continues to this day. And of course, in the USA, sports betting has been a big growth area these last few years and now MLS has a betting partner in the form of MGM and and clubs now have betting partners as, as, as well. So the two worlds are very tightly intertwined. Man. It's crazy to realize that B-Win is, first of all, how you say it, because my whole life I've called it B-Win, uh, but also <laughs> that they were a gambling company, because of course they were. But I think when you just see them on the shirt, you don't really know. You just know that, like, oh, they must be a legitimate company because they're Real Madrid sponsor. And that's the point, right, is that if you see a, a, a gambling company, a gambling site on a Premier League club's shirt, you assume, yeah. well, there must be some legitimacy there. They wouldn't just sign up with anybody. And so I think right there, you see how that relationship can be so mixed, 
so quickly. Uh, but Graham, you laid it out really well from the 20s to the 60s to the 2000s. Before I, I add in one thing, did you have uh, anything else to add? Yeah, just just jumping off on the legitimacy, legitimacy thing, mm-hmm. that is the key aspect for so many of these betting companies to the extent where some of the brands, the betting brands that you'll see in the Premier League or, or in, on the shirts of other clubs, they don't even operate in that country. So um, Daffabet, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it, but they sponsored Bournemouth and Celtic until fairly recently, do not operate in the UK, but they are counting on eyeballs from where they do operate, seeing those clubs and, and acting obviously as a form of advertising. And Newcastle were sponsored by... Uh, was it like Fund 68 or something oh, yeah. like that? Yeah. A very memorable uh, name of a company. But again, they didn't, they didn't operate in the UK. They were, they were from um, the Far East and, and, and China, I, th- I think. So, um, yeah, that is a, a, a weird wrinkle where some of the brands you might see on the shirts of clubs in England or Europe or wherever don't actually operate to, cust- to, the, to their own fans. They can't have their own fans as customers. Which is not at all a problem and not at all uh, a billion dollar industry in other areas of the world. We'll talk about that in a bit because the only other thing I wanted to add when it comes to how we see gambling and football become so intertwined over the years is, to my understanding, the breakaway of the Premier League uh, and Sky getting the rights to it. So uh, to my understanding, that's when you are then having a move towards live in-game betting because you're getting games streamed. You're not having to send away an envelope, as you said, Grammar, waiting for uh, telegraph results to tell you who won the game. You can make wagers as the game is happening and see what's going on in the game. And so that also seems to be a pretty important moment in the sport is how involved television can be in gambling and then obviously you get ads for gambling on tv as well so it becomes kind of ubiquitous as i said in the introduction um where are we in terms of advertising at this point graham because you talked about it a little bit about how we had alcohol sponsors on shirts now it seems to be betting companies that will not be the case for that much longer it does feel like we just kind of rotate vices when it comes to shirt sponsors (laughs) Yeah, a few years ago it was crypto. That seemed that bubble seemed to pop pretty I'm wondering quickly. If a, I'm wondering if a tobacco company has ever been in there. There have to have been like like uh, easy smoking cigs yeah, at or, some point or something. I watched yeah. the Netflix documentary about Jewel. Remember the yes. the vape oh, yeah. things, the vape pens. Yeah, I wonder if they thought about a Premier League sponsorship at some point. Um, gambling advertising and sponsorship is kind of everywhere in in, in soccer in 2023. I, I would challenge anyone to watch a match um, right now in present day whether that is in a stadium or on TV and not see a gambling logo somewhere because soccer is plastered with betting sponsorship. And I found a, a University of Stirling, uh, best u- university in the world, might I, might I add, a study from the <laughs> Uni of Stirling um, from 2020, which looked at five major football matches. Uh, so they took a, a sample size of five matches um, during a Premier League season and they found that a gambling sponsor was referenced or within sight every 21 seconds during those TV broadcasts, which is is quite frightening. You know, I, I think I, as my disclosure suggests, I may be a little bit more um, open to gambling in, in, in soccer, but that is that is a terrifying thought, an advert every 21 seconds. That is saturation beyond the point of reasonability. So TV advertising is one form of gambling advertise, advertising you'll see. Uh, although in the UK you won't see commercials at halftime of matches, I went looking to see if there were any restrictions on that in, in the US. I couldn't, I couldn't find anything, so that was allowed until fairly recently in the UK. But it was, it was outlawed, and now they just pack them in before the start of a match. So before a, a match will kick off in the UK, you'll get a, a short advertise, adver, adver, advert break, excuse me, commercial break, 
and you'll have like back-to-back bookmakers adverts because they can't have them at halftime anymore and then obviously you have shirt sponsorship as well and this is a, a revenue stream worth an estimated 60 million pounds a season across the Premier League in terms of what they receive from gambling companies it's even more proportionally large in the EFL which is actually sponsored by Skybet and half a dozen of the teams in the Skybet championship currently carry front of uh, shirt logos of of betting brands and as I've mentioned already um, certain leagues and competitions themselves are are sponsored by betting brands in Scotland. A couple of seasons ago in Scotland, we had the Ladbrokes Premiership, which is our top flight. Our League Cup was the Betfred Cup, and the Scottish Cup was the Scottish Cup uh, presented by William Hill. And Celtic were sponsored by Daffabet, and Rangers were sponsored by 32 Red. All rival yep. betting and casino companies. So I think um, in, in the Premier League, obviously there's maybe a greater variance of companies that will sponsor um, clubs because of the nature of the Premier League or even the big European leagues but if you scratch below the surface and you go to some of the smaller leagues or the leagues below the top divisions in Europe you will find a real reliance on gambling money coming into those clubs in that sport. Yep uh, as evidenced uh, there's a Guardian article on this one up to 72 English football clubs have taken a cut of the money fans lose gambling with Skybet it is almost unbelievable. Clubs are encouraging their own fans to gamble, and then and then those same clubs cash in when they lose. The more fans lose, uh, the better it is for them. A family's ruin is the jackpot, says the Guardian. And that is the odd conundrum of this, right? Uh, is that gambling is so common and so widespread? It's also an individual choice. It is a, a freedom of choice sort of thing. It's just it's also that it is in every aspect of the sport including what we do. I mean, when you talk about writing, when you talk about uh, published sites, but then also podcasts or anything else, gambling sponsors are always going to be the easiest money to get because there's always going to be money in gambling. And so if you are writing gambling pieces as you do, as Ryan does, or doing sort of uh, talking head things, Ryan will do those. Um, it makes sense because there's money there. And in an industry where there isn't always going to be a ton of money, especially if you're freelance, that's an area that you know you can uh, like get immediate Maybe not immediate, but it's much more easy to get ad revenue. Yeah, the bookies always have money. From yeah, my exactly. experience, they always have money. And if if if, if you work in, in in sports, that is a temptation that is often too too big to pass up in yeah. in an industry, and particularly in journalism. Just just talking about myself um, personally for a moment, you know, the the bottom has fallen out of the journalism market generally the last few years, with the exception of bookmakers. So that is something that I have to. I have to grapple with myself. Um, I'm not anti-gambling per se. I am pro-regulation, certainly. Yeah, there you go. But there's, the the lines are the, the lines um, are sometimes difficult to to see clearly. This is a strange question. You say you're not anti-gambling. Does that make you pro-gambling? That is a very difficult question to answer. It's this a little bit like thing, saying right? am I pro-alcohol? Like yeah. I enjoy a I drink. Mean, I'll, I'll um, say I'm pro-alcohol. <laughs> that's that's fine. Yeah. Okay. Maybe on Fridays and Saturdays, I'm 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 pro-alcohol, yeah. particularly after a Sterling Albion win. But do you know what I mean? It's 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 clearly something that has a detrimental effect on certain people and on and on their lives. I know people who are gambling addicts, mm-hmm. and that is yeah. that is very difficult to have that discussion with them when I am kind of involved. In that what in that world, but I do believe that the gambling industry in general can do a much better job of protecting those people. Can you protect those people fully? Maybe not. It's a little bit similar to alcohol. Can you can you protect people fully from alcohol addiction? Maybe not. And that is just in general in society a a, 
that's something we have to weigh up is how much protection how 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 much protection should the individual have from from certain vices but yeah pro regulation is is absolutely my stance so what type of regulation then do you think you are most in favor of or do you think is most effective because i think i come at it from a similar perspective of like like honestly maybe it's a bad thing to say but like gambling on a game on an event undeniably makes it more intriguing and interesting. And mm-hmm. and my background in that one, my introduction to it was horse racing. I went to school in Kentucky, going to horse races and betting and not even winning, but like not really knowing anything about the horse, but having that vested interest, it pulls you into a thing that you might not otherwise care about. And that, to my understanding, is is a big part of how people get into it and why people get into it is if you don't really care about an NFL team or a tennis match, but you know some people who are watching it, and so you say, I've got five bucks on this person to win. You're going to immediately have a rooting interest, and there is that sort of pull to it, that it gets you more involved in the sport, it gets you more into it. At the same time, I think in my mind, it is very quickly a slippery slope from five bucks on that horse that has a funny name to I've taken out a second mortgage to bet on that horse that has a funny name. And and there is a huge amount of gray area in between there. But to me, it is a gray area. And navigating that is what I think makes me more uncertain about gambling and gambling sponsorships. Yeah, so I ha- I've been through the process with the Gambling Commission in, in, in the UK with my, my fantasy football company. That's another thing to say is we're not a bootmakers. We're a fantasy football company, but we, we, we still count as gambling in the UK. I think that's a difference to the US where it's classed as a game of skill. And so FanDuel and DraftKings, when they launched as fantasy companies, weren't, um, they weren't counted as, as gambling. That's how they were allowed to launch. But nonetheless, I've been through the process. So self-exclusion is a really important and I think powerful thing not many people realize that this is this is something that exists but we have to sign up to an organization called gamstop and so um, problem gamblers can sign up to this self-exclusion program that essentially blocks them from every single um, betting company or app in the country so you have to be signed up to gamstop we plug into that system and if you're a problem gambler an addict and you go into an app it'll note it'll notice that you are that person and it will block you from that the the other thing that people don't really realize is and i don't really know how this squares with like privacy law and gdpr law in the uk but Essentially, the Gamble Commission has all the data on how much people are wagering, how much, the, mm-hmm. how often they're on a betting site, how often they're winning, how often they're losing. And so with that data, if they're collecting that data, and that's a different, that's a question, that's a debate in itself, whether they should be collecting that data. But if you are going to collect that data, um, use it to protect people. So if you, if you see someone that has lost a lot of money in a very, um, short space of time then do something to protect that person the, the technology exists to do that we have built certain technology like that into our into our own company there's a certain there's only a certain amount that you can actually lose through 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 our company so um yeah that technology exists self-exclusion mm-hmm. i also think just choice there's too much choice in gambling so for example there are mar- in football you will find markets on like slovakian third mm-hmm. division games I'm sorry, anyone um, gambling, anyone betting on a, a Slovakian third division game in the UK is not doing that for fun. That is not a healthy habit to have. And so I think there's almost too much too much choice in some instances. So yeah, those are, those are, those are some of the things that I would like to see curbed. Yeah, and I think when you are talking about the people who are betting on the Slovakian second division, there's a few points there. First of all, uh, more than a million people addicted to gambling in the United Kingdom. 
uh, every single day. At least one of those people takes their lives, according to stats. Uh, 86% of online betting profits come from just 5% of customers. So those would be the ones that are fully at risk of addiction. And at the same time, you've got industries spending over 1.5 billion pounds on advertising. So there is choice in what you're wagering on. There is choice on where you can wager and how you can wager. And I think that also compounds things because it is just so widespread and so prevalent, uh, unless you're a player, in which case it's absolutely not allowed. If you're an owner, it's theoretically not allowed, but we're not going to make the rules about how it's not allowed publicly available. So you do have allegations that certain owners have wagered on their own clubs, but we definitely have instances of players wagering uh, on themselves or the teams uh, that they play for or support. So, uh, you mentioned it in the introduction, Ivan Tony, uh, one of those currently serving a suspension. This week, we're recording this uh, on Wednesday, October 18th. Sandro Tonali seems likely to get a lengthy ban uh, for wagering on Milan when he was playing there. And we've had other players along the way get suspensions or just talk publicly about it. Michael Owen, Wayne Rooney, uh, Deet Mohammed, Andres Townsend have all publicly spoken about their issues with gambling, their addictions with gambling, uh, and the struggles of overcoming those issues. Yeah, and I think this is, recently this is the thing that has come to the fore. I think gambling addiction among players is becoming a bigger and bigger talking point. As as you mentioned there, um, Taylor, the Sandro Tonali thing is, feels like that's going to blow up any 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 moment and he will be handed a, a, a pretty lengthy ban. His agent has has um, kind of admitted that his player is, is a gambling addict. Uh, it's also been reported that he, he bet, on, bet on AC Milan matches while he was playing for AC Milan, which obviously... Um, isn't ideal at all. Lucas Paqueta is also under investigation by the FA. His transfer to Manchester City in the summer sort of fell apart after th- those uh, allegations came to the fore. Uh, Paul Merson is someone that I would recommend listening to on gambling addiction among players. He's he's written a uh, a book about struggling with gamble addiction his his entire life. He has stories about players within the dressing room. He was a great player for Arsenal in the 90s and then played for Aston Villa as well. And there are certain players, he says, that have never, you know, kind of publicly come out with their gambling addiction. He knows that that, that struggled with it. So there is a sense that gambling addiction among players players is, is is a huge problem we're only starting to see that come to the surface now there was a story in may of this year which claimed 35 football players in the uk alone were being treated for gambling addiction at that particular uh moment and and some players make the argument this was certainly something that ivan tony said in an interview on the youtube channel uh, diary of a, a ceo earlier this year i would recommend watching that um some players make the argument that it's one rule for them and another for everyone else yep. in football, where you have, as you referenced, Taylor, you have club owners from the betting world. So Brentford and Brighton's owners both operate gambling companies. And I you think there's have- pretty compelling evidence that Brentford's owner also wagered on games like as himself. <laughs> like, so, yeah. so then it goes even further into like, well, that seems to not have been punished that aggressively. Yeah, and obviously that is that's kind of the, the sort of thing that Ivan Tony is talking about, where there's mm-hmm. one rule for for players and another for everyone else. Um, as we've kind of mentioned with sponsorship and shirts, loads of players play games with uh, betting logos plastered across their chest, and then they aren't a, allowed to use that 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 gambling product. And then other players c- claim that. Um, they aren't educated enough on both the, mm-hmm. the sort of rules enforced by the FA that players are not allowed to bet on any match anywhere in the world, and then also the dangers of of, of gambling. That was one of the points that Ivan Tony made in that interview. Was it kind of feels like 
elsewhere in society there are schemes and programs to maybe not enough but nonetheless there are those schemes to help gambling addicts and and maybe educate and soccer players are just kind of left to it on their own and even after Ivan Tony has admitted that he has a, a problem with gambling he gets slapped with this giant s- suspension and not really given any kind of rehabilitation in any way so it, it does seem to have been a problem under the surface and soccer needs to figure out a way to deal with it it seems I'm aware of the slippery slope nature of the question I'm about to ask. I'm going to ask it anyway. Graham, do you have a problem with players betting on their own games? Notably, if they are betting on themselves to win, as Sandra Tonali did uh, with Milan. Th- their own games, I feel like, maybe crosses uh, a line. Okay, why is he- that? If they bet on themselves to win, why is that crossing a line? I don't disagree, but I'm not entirely sure why I feel that way. Yeah, well, obviously, what we're talking about here is like is match fixing connotations or implications, right? right? And and betting on themselves to win, you're right, is maybe um, it's a little bit difficult to understand how they would be able to fix a match in that way. But if you're allowing players to mm-hmm. bet on matches um, as a totality, and in, in, in terms of matches and specifically on their own matches, then I guess you could have a player on the other side who theoretically mm-hmm. hypothetically bets on their team to lose and then a player in the home team bets on them to win and i, I guess you could maybe in some way fix yeah. a match or at least warp the outcome of a match there so it, it, i think it's just cleaner if you if you um outlaw or, or ban players um yeah. betting on their own matches and and then my assumption would be that if you do have a player with an addictive personality or addiction issues and they start off betting on their on their team to win and they play for I don't know, Luton, uh, maybe they're not going to win as much money if they're betting on themselves to win. And so I guess the argument would be eventually you have the moment where it's like, or I could bet on us to lose a game. (laughs) And then I think very quickly you can have that slippery slope uh, idea as to why you don't want gambling in the sport. It just does feel sort of strange that it's okay for everybody else but the players. But I think then the argument is they're well compensated for their work. Uh, and maybe it's the one area that they can avoid similar to insider trading. Yeah, and the FA would, would argue that um, not only does it combat match-fixing this this ban, but they would argue this is the protection of, of players, that essentially mm-hmm. players are, or not essentially, um, players aren't allowed to bet on matches at all, as I, as, as I say. That was brought in in 2014, so it's a, it's a relatively sort of recent thing. Um, this and there have been some measures there is a discussion particularly in the UK at the moment about maybe ro- rolling back gambling and, and the freedoms that gambling companies have and advertising and introducing mm-hmm. some more restrictions and from the start of the 2026-27 season um, you referenced it at the top of the show Taylor but it's worth talking about what this in- uh, is being introduced but um, Premier League clubs won't be allowed to have front of spot- shirt sponsorship deals with gambling companies from that season um, so there has been discussion at governmental level about further restrictions on gambling advertising including banning advertising around the pitch I mentioned the thing about no longer allowing commercials at half time of games this was actually a voluntary thing from the Premier League this wasn't handed down from the government this was the Premier League basically meeting and, and agreeing to, to to this to this ban from 26 27 but it does also speak to the I guess the nervousness from gambling companies that they're going to get closed down or shut down even mm-hmm. further in the UK that they have kind of accepted this as a bit of a concession there hasn't been much pushback from them it, it feels to me a bit like the tobacco industry in the United States, that you go from having 
cartoon mascots and ads on TV to now you can only advertise in print and you have to be very mindful of the mascots you're using and you have to put warnings on the packs of cigarettes themselves. And the idea is you can put all the warnings in place and you can put uh, prevention and addiction and and treatments out there as well. But ultimately, people are still going to choose to do it and it becomes a matter of individual choice. But I think a thing that we have talked about at various points in this episode is having the resources there for if the person chooses to avoid it or chooses to get help from being addicted to it and and how much those resources are available, how widely available they are, how easily you can uh, pursue them and get them, and then how easily you can avoid having uh, a gambling sponsor front and center of your life every single day of the week. And And so it does feel like that regulation is meant to make it less of a pervasive hey it's everywhere so it must be fine sort of thing because that does also feel what they play upon or prey upon is if you don't have people who are educated about the potential vulnerabilities or issues of gambling and you see it everywhere and and uh i always want to say ray hudson it's not ray hudson who is uh who's in the departed who's who's always doing oh ray winston ray winston thank you if yeah if you have ray winston telling you it's fine go do it like you you're gonna probably think to do it and so i do think measures to make it less just available everywhere to have 12 year olds wearing a gambling company on their shirt is probably not the worst idea that is another development actually in in recent seasons so Mm -hmm. as listeners will know I'm, i'm i'm a kit nerd um it is increasingly common to have the the youth versions of shirts without the gambling that. sponsor. Um, so I I see like Celtic Rangers shirts without that sponsor now, which which makes sense. Like that is a common sense thing. Uh, but until fairly recently, you would have the the kids shirts with the gambling sponsor on it, which. It's quite remarkable that that wasn't illegal, um, or still isn't illegal, actually. I think that is still allowed. It's more the clubs um, t- making yeah. that decision. Um, the UK government, they released a white paper earlier this year, which had been talked about for years and years and years, and it had been delayed and delayed, and obviously COVID happened, which sort of shifted the priorities. And there was a lot of anticipation for it. And then it came out, and to be honest, I, I, read, I read through it in and, and, and full. Not, not much changed in terms of the regulation. It didn't really focus much on sports betting, and, and it was more about limiting slot machines and casino games. And, and there was greater enforcement of self-exclusion programs there, but there wasn't a, a lot of, that people were looking for from that. So it has kind of fallen on the clubs and the league, that's why you've got the Premier League having this, this front of sponsor, a front of shirt sponsor ban. It's kind of fallen on the clubs and the leagues to, to enforce uh, more regulation on themselves. It does seem like so much of the conversation has been about addiction and regulation and sponsors and advertising, both in terms of the episode we've done, but also just broadly speaking, that seems to be where a majority of the coverage is focused. I think it's also worth noting as we talk about gambling, uh, a thing you mentioned briefly earlier would be match fixing and how prevalent that is. Uh, and maybe not so much in the major leagues of Europe in the Premier League or the Champions League, though there have been match fixing allegations or matches that were under investigation. Liverpool had one against, I think, a Hungarian side in 2009. Uh, I don't think Liverpool were the ones who were suspected of match fixing there. Uh, but the, the larger issue would be its prevalence around the world, specifically in Southeast Asia. Uh, David Goldblatt has, he wrote the great book, The Ball is Round. He wrote the follow-up book, The Age of Football, uh, focusing on football in the 21st century. And he has uh, various parts of the book dedicated to how widespread gambling is and how 
much match fixing tends to follow that. And he talks about uh, leagues in Malaysia falling apart because there's just widespread corruption. Uh, here's a good one for you. Malaysia's M League has never been able to rebuild the trust that was shattered by the huge match match fixing scandal of 1994 when 21 players and coaches were sacked and 58 more suspended uh, for the problem will not go away. You had a match-fixing scandal in Korea in 2011, I believe, when you had multiple players arrested and charged. You had three players commit suicide uh, because they were about to be arrested and charged with crimes. But you've had uh, match-fixing problems in in Thailand, uh, in in really just a number of different countries around Southeast Asia. And then also you've had it in those lower leagues that you mentioned. Uh, the Finnish league had a few different scandals, all connection connected to Southeast Asian uh, betting rings. And so that also feels like one that Interpol has a lot of involvement in and FIFA can have some involvement in. And even club owners, I think the ones who are connected to betting sponsorships are required to report any irregularities or if there's sort of, odd wagers placed in a large sort of way. Uh, but that one seems to be much harder to, to deal with because even when Interpol does raids and breaks up gambling rings, I think they had one recently that was uh, like, like I think it was a hundred people arrested or thereabouts and $10 million seized. But when we're talking about an industry that is 200 to 500 billion a year, that 10 million is probably not so much a big wave as it is a drop in the bucket. So the involvement uh, of gambling and match fixing and how much they go hand in hand is the other huge part of gambling that gets talked about less because it isn't as much of an issue in certain footballing nations as it is around the world. Yeah, and and the the evolution that, or the revolution that's happened in gambling in the internet age where essentially everyone has a 24-hour casino in mm -hmm. their pocket, which is another factor in why gambling addiction has, has become a bigger issue over the last what 10 to 15 years that also means match fixing there's more opportunity for max match fixing mm -hmm. right so if, if if we were to ban gambling like legal gambling from soccer entirely i'm tempted to say that fat uh, that match fixing would would still exist in some form and i go back to 1915 with mm -hmm. that manchester United liverpool match where sure it might not be signing up to an app and depositing cash through your iphone and placing a bet on on your phone that way but it might be a little bit more of sort of um money in brown envelopes sort of match fixing but you're right there are more instances of it now that we are in the internet age and and that's a a, yeah. a difficult one to combat that really I don't know. That seems to be one that is beyond leagues and clubs mm -hmm. to do anything about. Like, I'm not really sure even a club the size of, you know, you, you mentioned Liverpool or Manchester United or some of the big Premier League clubs. I don't, I don't really know what's within their powers to to do anything about that. As you say, that's more yeah. for the, the the authorities and for the police to to deal with. It does seem to be one where if you are considering match fixing, number one, I would say don't. Probably not yeah, a great do idea. <laughs> uh, but a lot of it seems to be with officials and finding officials who are uh, willing to work with you and award certain things. And it's not just this team needs to win, so make them win. Award a penalty in the 95th minute and then all is going to be fine. It is a lot of when will the first yellow card be produced? Will there be a yellow card in the first half? If you know a referee is willing to issue that card you're going to put money on it. And so I, it's it's finding officials who I think will mm. work with the systems uh, in a way that then you can... And, like, I've heard players talk about point shaving in college, the original, like, point shaving scandal in college, and how 
the 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 guy who was involved in that, the player who was involved in that, was like, I didn't even have to do anything this game. Like we, we were just bad, and so like we lost. We we didn't cover the spread. I didn't even have to be involved. And so for an official, if you if you know the the betting people who have given you a bribe just need you to give a card in the first half, and there's a really aggressive challenge that you were already going to give a yellow card for. Like it's not it's not that hard to then have that become a, a part of your thinking and have it influence games. And yeah. I think there have been ones about like the number of corners awarded and when it felt like, shouldn't that have been a corner? Why was that given as a goal kick? That was one match that was investigated because there were like three goal kicks given that definitely should have been cornered and there was or corners and there was a regular betting on the number of corners in that game. So very, very weird patterns. And I think of, officials and referees can be a big part of that, but players as well uh when interpol reported on the matter in 2013 this is again from david goldblatt's book uh in europe alone 380 matches were suspected of interference and 300 elsewhere most notably world cup qualifying matches involving nigerian and honduran national teams and the champions league game this is one i mentioned between liverpool and hungarian club uh debrecken in 2009 so you do get it more widespread than we might realize but it isn't always this team scores two own goals and loses yeah. two nil because that's what the betting spread required. And and when I talked earlier about um, variety mm-hmm. and what you can find on on a, on a, on a betting site, and I referenced Slovakia in what third division games. I'm also talking about those sort of markets, Taylor, yep. like number of corners, yellow cards, and um, little peek behind the curtain here. I, I do weekly tips for a, a, a betting company in, in in the UK. They used to ask me to to do a tip for someone to get booked every single weekend. I actually went back to them after a couple of weeks and said, can I, can I stop doing this one? Because I actually don't really have any data to yeah, suggest. Yeah. Like most of my tips are this team is on a good goal scoring run. This is how many goals they score in these sort of situations, blah, blah, blah. With bookings, it's just such a like throwing a dart at, mm-hmm. at, at a wall and hoping like that, that something hits a target. And so I don't do that anymore. But that's the sort, those are the sort of markets when people talk about match fixing, as you say, it tends not to be really obvious things like goals or things that actually affect the outcome of the match it's it's corners it's uh yellow cards it's number of fouls that things like that that maybe kind of go under the surface or under the radar and 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 people wouldn't maybe notice on on the surface of things and I would be remiss if I didn't point out that in the 2010 World Cup, the referee who refused to give the US uh I think he disallowed a, a goal uh, for the US versus uh, Slovenia in that game, which definitely should have been given. And if anything, the U.S. should have gotten a penalty as well. Uh, that referee banned from, re- from officiating, mm. uh, for connections to match fixing. So, yeah, you do. And, and the referee who disallowed Scott McTominay's goal against Spain, Serdar, uh, goes Bujic, um, it was involved in a match fixing investigation a few years ago. Not, that I'm yeah. saying anything. Not, that I'm not saying anything. You join the dots. I'm not firing up the, uh, the, the lawyer, the, the fire truck of lawyers there, but there you go. And and that is, to me, the other huge negative, murky as it may be when it comes to gambling, is that connection to match fixing or the potential for it. The the slippery slope of Ivan Tony betting on his team to win, but at a certain point, if they're on a four-game winless streak, is there that temptation to, you know what, I'll put a fiver on us losing, because whatever, like, it doesn't matter, and then I'll feel better about losing, because I made some money. Like, it, it I just, do that sometimes. Like, I don't know whether that, I, I should admit to that, because it's not exactly <laughs> betting to win, but I will sometimes bet yeah. against Albion, and my logic is, because if we lose, I end up winning a little bit of money, and that'll make me feel a bit better. Yeah. But, yeah, I do that sometimes. But it just, it casts a pall, it casts a shadow, it makes you wonder, like, the McTominay thing, is it likely that 
there was match fixing or something else nefarious? Nah, not really. I, I don't think so. But at the same time, if you have if you have those questions, if you don't feel like it's being fully stamped out or fully regulated, it it just it it's a further thing that corrupts what should be a beautiful thing in the form of the beautiful game. So it does feel like it's an issue that is going to be ongoing because, as we said in the beginning, gambling has existed since history. <laughs> I feel like, like the, the the first humans as they evolved were immediately betting on like what the next evolution would be or like which walking fish would become the human. Yeah. I don't know. Stones. So, <laughs> exactly. Quite, quite, quite like the look of that stone. I'll bet you my rubbish stone for your good stone. <laughs> Yours was better. Uh, so it, it seems like a thing that will be – uh, prevalent and common, even if you do regulate it, even if you do remove shirt sponsors from the, the Premier League clubs, as you will at the end of the 26-27 season, leagues are signing up with betting companies, you've got same-day fantasy, you've got plenty of other ways to gamble, and, and I don't think that is necessarily a problem, it just presents a thing that requires eyes and and light cast upon it, and so I think that's where... Uh, people writing about it, people covering it, people talking about it uh, is important because gambling is important for sport. It, it's a huge money maker. It's a huge thing that will be involved. It's just how involved it is and the ways in which it's involved are the things to pay attention to. Yeah, and there is a juxtaposition between gambling being reined in a little bit in, in the UK and Europe right now and the American market, Free which, for all. <laughs> yeah, has has loosened regulations yeah. on, on sports betting in, in, in recent years. I personally can't envisage how American soccer like isn't going to have the same issues that British and European soccer um, mm. has had 10 years from now because it's on the same trajectory. Like we had this free for all in the mid 2000s in the UK, in, the, in America, it's happening now. And I haven't really seen much chat at all about restrictions or regulations because American teams and leagues have big flashing dollar signs in their eyes at the moment. And that seems mm-hmm. to be all that they're, they're, they're interested in. So maybe that, that will change. Maybe the leagues and the authorities in America will look at what has happened in Europe and the UK and, and maybe bring in some regulation a little bit quicker. But I, I do think America is unfortunately heading for a similar situation. Oh, 100%. And not just on the sports betting side. On a personal note, uh, the city of Richmond, Virginia, where I live, uh, we had a referendum a couple years ago about a casino that wanted to be built here in Richmond. Uh, there was a massive amount of money put into the pro casino campaign. You had advertisements everywhere. You had people knocking doors. You had the mayor talking about it publicly. And it was voted down. People voted against it, did not want a casino in Richmond. Popular vote said no. Graham, can you guess what's on the ballot this year? Mm. Yeah. Is it a casino in Richmond? It is a casino in Richmond. The exact same casino. But don't worry, they heard our concerns and they've made it even more glamorous, even if they probably oh. have not. So it's there's huge amounts of money to be made. There will be huge amounts of money to be made. And I agree with you. I think it's going to be an even bigger market in the United States than it's been elsewhere. So I think we'll continue mm. to see it expand and explode. And then it's about the resources that are available and the ways in which it's allowed to expand, I think, become Pretty critical. So we'll see. But for now, I just hope people uh, hold their ground and vote no on the casino here in Richmond. Yeah. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. But Graham Ruffin, thank you for talking with me about a complex, convoluted, complicated uh, issue, but one that I think is important to discuss because it yeah. is ultimately a thing that both of us sort of enjoy. Uh, I would say I think you probably enjoy it a little bit more than I do because I think you're more used to it. And that is also part of it, like being used to it, being steeped in it makes it more of a common thing. I think for me, with gambling being illegal and 
like like poker sites getting shut down in my lifetime for uh, allowing gambling. I think I still have more hesitation, more trepidation, but I think it's still a topic that uh, is valuable to discuss. Yeah, I think that's fair. I've never known football as an adult, certainly without gambling. And you're right, I'm, I'm sort of steeped in it. We're steeped in it as a country and it is a, a conversation worth having there are lots of different aspects to consider and um, but tell me this will you be taking the spruce moose to the richmond casino when it is <laughs> is that the glider <laughs> that's the that's uh when uh mr burns loses his mind over the springfield casino ah. and tells uh smithers to get in the spruce moose they're taking the spruce moose <laughs> to the casino hop in and points a gun at him is that howard hughes had the 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 version of that i believe in real life uh yeah sure why not i'll take that one uh, let's make it happen uh <laughs> listeners on that note as i go board my my wooden plane uh thank you all so much for listening for sticking with us uh again a a slightly lengthier conversation than maybe the coefficients episode but graham ruffin thank you listeners thank you all for listening we'll talk to you again next week <laughs>